You are now about to be regaled with a few brimming soup plates of duck soup, consisting of tasty, topical tidbits, concocted by those princely purveyors of mad mirth and furiously funny farce, the Four Marx Brothers. That, of course, the haunting love theme from Duck Soup. Welcome back, everybody, to this, the 13th edition of the Marx Brothers Council podcast. I'm Bob Gasell. This is going to be a big one. We're going to take a deep dive into what is probably the most popular of the Marx Brothers films, Duck Soup. This is the one that always gets put on the list of uh, all-time top comedies. And, you know, it would be almost impossible to find someone who does not put it near the top of their list of Marx films. But guess what? We have one of those people with us today. Coming to us all the way from, uh, well, I don't know where he's coming from with this, but <laughs> welcome anyhow, the stubborn Mr. Matthew Conium. Hello, boss. How's everything going? <laughs> it's fine. And I do put it near the top of my list, just not not near the very, very, very peak. Near means the top half, I guess. It's in the top half. <laughs> and also joining us uh, a bit closer to reality as well as New York City, <laughs> the one and only Mr. Alsatius himself, Noah Diamond. Hello, Bob, and thank you for that. I've rarely been accused of being close to reality. Before we get started, I want to throw in this little disclaimer. Um, in our past year or so of doing the podcast, we've talked a lot about duck soup and various aspects of it here and there on other shows. So you might be hearing some things, again, that you've heard before, but uh, we probably think it's a good idea to get it all under one umbrella in one show. So bear with us. Um, Bob, you said that already. <laughs> <laughs> duck Soup, of course, is the Marx's fifth film, the last one they did for Paramount, the last to feature Zeppo, and the last before the Hayes Code uh, really started being enforced. But it came very, very close to not being uh, made at all. And that uncertainty actually played a big part in what ended up on the screen. Matthew, why don't you uh, give us a little background here? Yes, it was um, a slightly chaotic and, uh, and long drawn out process. The important thing to remember is, is that whilst uh, it was being um, planned, the Marx Brothers were actually suing Paramount for uh, $205,000, which they claimed was still owing from, uh, from the profits of monkey business. So it was uh, a fractious and tense uh, kind of working background. Um, it was uh, announced for a while as Ooh La La with Lubitsch um, being suggested as the director, um, according to Variety, um, when uh, mm -hmm. the Marx Brothers were asked why it was called Ooh La La, I to explain the, 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 the title explained it, <laughs> which is quite nice. Then uh, it was, as we know, it was firecrackers and cracked ice and grasshoppers and various other things on the way to becoming Duck Soup, and uh, as we know from the scripts, it was also uh, a number of significantly different films uh, on the way to becoming what we know as Duck Soup. The important dates are, um, according to the Hollywood Reporter of March the 8th, 1933, that was when uh, the Marx Brothers, according to them, packed up their belongings and walked off the lot, uh, claiming that as long as Paramount withholds uh, the monies that they were owed on previous pictures, the current contract was invalid. 
Then on March the 11th, it reports that they've associated themselves with this new outfit called uh, Producing Artists Incorporated, which mm-hmm. was a, a kind of a, um, a new a new setup whereby bankable directors and stars would would create their own temporary production companies under a larger umbrella to make the films exactly the way they wanted to. And the Marx Brothers jumped ship um, to do that, uh, to join Max Gordon and Sam Harris, who both they had history with in both cases. Um, they um, formed a company which they called International Amalgamated Consolidated Affiliated Worldwide Film Productions Company Incorporated of North Dakota, uh, which was later shortened to Marx Brothers Inc. But that was uh, that was their plan, and they were going to produce, as we know, a film version of of the I Sing as part of a five year deal with uh, with what was it called, producing producing artists incorporated. On April the fourth, Hollywood Reporter. Um, says that they were attempting to buy back the Duck Soup script, then called Grasshoppers, from Paramount to make uh, as part of their new production plan. On May the 3rd, we learn that Paramount has definitely vetoed that and, uh, and is instead um, having the script revised as a vehicle for Jack Oakey, W.C. Fields and Ken Murray. And the significance of that is that it was at that stage uh, on May the 9th that Paramount announced that Leo McCary had officially signed as director. So if those dates stack up, McCary signed to the project at a time when the Marx Brothers themselves weren't actually associated with the projects. Um, however, as we know, they did they did troop back. They did uh, they did do it, and the result was um, a celebrated, famous film that in 1967 uh, Leo McCary described thus: "I don't like it so much, you know." <laughs> do we really? Do you really think that McCary couldn't get out of the film? Couldn't get out of it once the Marxes returned? Was he really that? contractually committed no i think he could get out of it i don't think he was he was desperate to get out of it but i don't think he had any particular interest in it and he he didn't like the script he was given much and wanted to change it um just to to Mm -hmm. make himself not you know not from a desire to to give them something different to do although you know that that is the net effect but just just to make it more fun for him i think more in his more in his Mm -hmm. style you know it's interesting. You brought up these uh, earlier treatments uh, in scripts. Uh, Noah has a little bit of background on that and how those uh, differed from what we ended up seeing on the screen. It's one of the films that, among the Marx Brothers films, is relatively easy to trace that way because earlier drafts and treatments have been flying around the internet for so long. Um, and although I think just as the satirical intention of Duck Soup the finished film has been overstated. It's also been overstated a lot how much more subversive the earlier versions are. It's, it's become kind of an article of faith that if you look back at the grasshoppers and cracked ice versions of it, it was a far darker and edgier and, and more deliberate political satire. Uh, not quite, but, uh, it is admittedly darker. I think the reason people, the, the principal reason, People like to say that it, it began as more of a satirical piece is because the original incarnation of Groucho's character, Rufus T. Firefly, is an ammunition salesman um, and the president of an ammunition company. And his interest in the war in these early drafts is explicitly about selling ammunition. So right hmm. away, we're seeing a sort of darker and more corrupt version of the story we got to know. Um, but whether it points toward the creator's 
trying to make a, an observation about, um, you know, the military industrial complex, uh, doesn't seem clear. Uh, but it is, uh, it is a little bracing. The darkness of some of the gags in these early versions. There's a gag in which Harpo is driving along on his motorcycle, uh, flying the Fredonian flag. He mm-hmm. runs over a man mm-hmm. and then he immediately turns around and goes back, not to help or see if the guy's okay, but to lower the flag to half mast <laughs> yes. that, that's on his motorcycle and then to whip out a bugle and play taps before getting back on the motorcycle and zooming off. Uh, so there is a, a, certainly a darker overtone to to Cracked Ice. And um, I, I think the final film, too, although I, I continue to feel that the political satire in it is accidental and incidental. I mean, one word that's missing from the finished film, of course, is, is dictator, isn't it? Which is in the early scripts. Two or three yes. times yeah. the word dictator is used. And in fact, uh, uh, my favorite being when... Um, Firefly um, signs off a letter, your fun-loving dictator. Your fun-loving dictator, yeah. Yeah, they they did take the edge off of it. And I I assume that that was, you know, that they knew what they were doing when they did that. Yeah. It's also really the the film that we know is really, it's kind of three movies. and, And one of the three movies is derived from these screenplays, turned out principally by Kalmar and Ruby. Um and in those scripts, you do see a film that's a little bit more consistent with um, what was established in Monkey Business and Horse Feathers. The other two films, of course, are a kind of greatest hits collection from Flywheel, Shyster, and Flywheel. Uh, as most uh, fans know, many of the best gags in the movie come from that radio series by Arthur Sheikman and Nat Perrin. Um, and that's the basis of their screenwriting credit on Duck Soup. And then yet a third movie, which I'm sure we'll discuss as uh, <laughs> as we go, which was improvised on the set by silent comedy craftsman Leo McCary, mm-hmm. who also incidentally was chief of staff in the Bartlett White House. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's silly to try and determine what the uh, their best film is. People, you know, can make legitimate cases for everything up to probably uh, a day at the races, actually. But all we can do is say something's our favorite based on our own, our own particular taste. Yeah. For me, Duck Soup is my second favorite uh, after Animal Crackers. Um, Matthew has done a really good job over the years pointing out to me and others the... No, listen, that was, I'm, this is a compliment. Okay, yeah. okay, okay. The, okay. <laughs> pointing out, pointing out the, the differences in the Mark's humor in this film and how it doesn't really fit in with what they had done before. And he uses that as a basis for why he thinks it's uh, below some of the others. Well, you know, I respect that and can understand that. However, I see these differences as a positive. We'll get into them more as we go through the film uh, specifically. You know how the the big store is billed as the Marx Brothers and Tony Martin? Well, this one should be billed as the Marx Brothers and Leo McCary because it's really a, a true collaboration. You know, it's like when Phil Spector produced the Ramones. It's it's not typical Marx's and it's not typical uh, McCary. But it's a chance meeting of both these icons and great talents when they're both at their peak. And I think we should be grateful that we, we have it. Yeah, it's a hodgepodge. It's, you know, remnants of these other scripts and the radio show and McCary's improv. Uh, it's, uh, it's incoherent. The editing is sloppy. White shots don't match close ups. Bits of gags and storylines that were abandoned remain on the fringes. It's really a mess. And. Discussing the logic and motivations of each scene and character is sort of pointless. Uh, 
but we're going to do it anyhow because we've seen it so many times that uh, we can't help but notice things. Many times on the Facebook group, people have asked how the Marxes would have fared doing shorts. Uh, I think Duck Soup gives us an answer. Yeah. Yes. Premises that would have taken four minutes in uh, Animal Crackers are done here in like 45 seconds. Yeah. I prefer them slow, they say. That's that's part of the okay. reason. I would, be, I would be mad if I said, you know, I, I didn't like something because of things that were different about it if I found it hilarious. I mean, it's it's I, I genuinely don't find it as funny. Otherwise, I'd have obviously would have no problem with any changes if I thought mm. they were were great. But no, I, I like them. I like them being very methodical and uh, inescapable. It's interesting with Duck Soup that although it, it does have a faster pace than the other Marx Brothers movies generally do, uh, it also does have more entire scenes that I don't know that I ever need to see again, which which I can't say about the earlier Paramounts, you know. Generally, I like this movie uh, better than you do, Matthew, and not quite as well as you do, Bob. I, I think I'm in the middle, but... Um, you know, uh, some of the silent comedy sequences that, that we are inclined to maybe criticize as being uncharacteristic. Uh, one difference between those, um, and the more traditional Marx Brothers scenes is they don't, they don't reward repeated viewings quite as much. Um, I did think the lemonade and peanut stand business was pretty priceless when it was new to me, but on repeated viewings, and I'm now into the, you know, hundreds of viewings of duck soup, uh, that stuff is, is unlikely to get me to crack a smile now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but th- they didn't make the film for repeated viewings. They were making to get the best reaction out of the, the first and possibly only time you, you'd seen it. So it's that's true. not really fair to criticize it for that. They made them just for me. <laughs> but the kind of um, attention we pay to these films is, is largely because they do reward repeated viewing. I mean, uh, obviously, we're treating this as I mean, the Marx Brothers canon in general, as eternal art. Um, and it was intended as, you know, more as disposable entertainment. But by that criteria, we could, you know, we could put the whole thing to bed. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, um, thinking particularly of the, the, the peanut stand scene, one less uh, controversial observation, something that's very different, I think, from, from the previous ones, is there's a hell of a lot of exteriors, isn't there? There's an awful lot of, of natural mm. light. Um, yep. uh, for instance, that, that peanut stand scene, um, I can't imagine that being done outside of a studio in, in the previous ones. Uh, but they're in, they're in lovely Los Angeles, uh, late afternoon light, aren't they? Maybe they needed to do that because of the, uh, fire going on inside that that's one of the things that makes it feel very hal rochi in places isn't it the kind mm. of uh, lots of daylight scenes yeah i think so i think that is mccary too one of the uh urban legends on this film is that uh zeppo had quite a bit of material cut uh from when the film was shot until it was re- released in the theaters and um i came across uh, an interview while it was being made, and Zepp is commenting about how little he actually has to do and is actually surprised when he has to go, when he's being called in to do a line. So perhaps a lot of that stuff actually was cut before they uh, started shooting the film. The surviving earlier drafts don't 
point toward any kind of robust role for Zeppo, although there is some nice stuff that didn't make it. There is quite a bit of uh, Take a Letter stuff that's, that's been... Exactly. Uh, yeah. Yeah, a great piece with Groucho dictating a letter to the President of the United States, yeah. who is unnamed. But not only does that give... A, a, it's a nice follow-up to the Hunga Dunga piece from Animal Crackers. It also acknowledges the United States as an existing country in the same world as Fredonia, which... It, suggests a slightly different world than the one in the movie yes and it's one of my favorites as well the the going the did take out the deer take out the mite i think that's very very funny it's a it's a pity to lose that also did you you noticed that um zeppo uh is given the sequence in the film about um you you, you have to um offend him to start the war which in the early scripts is chico's scene so yes. it's it's almost like somebody clocked that he'd he'd had zeppo had, had almost everything lost and they kind of changed that to to toss him a bone almost just to give him something it wasn't a particularly rewarding comic sequence for chico to do so they so they switched it to to zeppo i think just to just to give him some uh some screen time it does make more sense for zeppo to play that advisory role and in in the earlier drafts too as in horse feathers uh, zeppo is groucho's son his name is, I think, Bob Firefly. Mm-hmm. And while we're talking about names changed, of all of all the um, of all the things that are different in the earlier scripts and what we have, the, the the single thing that I most mourn is the fact that in uh, in some of the early drafts, uh, Ambassador Trentino is called Felix Frankenstein. I can't, I can't, expl- I can't explain why, but that, that tickles me. He might have been called Felix yeah. Frankenstein. I think it's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, he might have been another Dr. Steinberg. <laughs> and, all, and his country is not Sylvania, but amnesia. Amnesia, yes. So any other uh, overall thoughts on this before we uh, start diving in? No. I'm ready to dive. Dive. Okay. okay, here we are. We were in we're in the theater. Uh, previews from upcoming films are shown, <laughs> and a cartoon, uh, maybe a newsreel, maybe a short. And <laughs> now comes our feature presentation. The fades up, and we see an NRA logo it's from the uh, National Rifle Association, which uh, obviously <laughs> these days gets mistaken for the National Ri- Rifle Association, which is uh, actually sort of understandable considering the amount of rifles that are in this film. But actually, it's. Uh, uh, refers to the National Recovery Administration of the Depression Era Relief Act uh, by FDR. Do either of you know the British film critic Mark Cousins? Um, he did a series which I think made yeah. it as far as America called The Story of Film. Uh, very yes, very earnest chap. He um, he famously um, did a, I think either a Facebook post or, or something. He announced that he was watching an early Paramount film and he was amazed to see that it was sponsored by the National Rifle Association. And <laughs> he wondered, has anybody done any research into this organization's links with early Hollywood? And uh, there was a, an awful lot of discussion about was he joking or not. And I think <laughs> the consensus was that he he actually wasn't. Uh, so it is it does I think it does need to be pointed out that it, it isn't the National Rifle Association. At all. Although we should note that uh, currently the uh, National Rifle Association does uh, actually endorse the film, so <laughs> they, they've they taken to it kindly. Um, we then go to the opening titles, and I'm sure no one these days has a problem with the image of uh, ducks being boiled alive. No, almost yeah. certainly uh, tied by their feet to the bottom of the pack. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, um, it doesn't look like the ducks are really in any uh, discomfort. The, the, the small flame that we see is seems like it's... Uh, far away from them, or maybe it's even a split screen process shot, though. But, uh, 
I, uh, I haven't lost any sleep over it, but. <laughs> it is very literal, though, isn't it? I mean, yeah. the, you know, uh, Monkey Business and Horse Feathers had comparatively fanciful titles, but they didn't make us look at uh, animated monkeys or flying horses. So we established that we're in the country of uh, Fredonia with its wonderful flag with a very small F in the middle. Uh, it's the country Fredonia, not the town in New York State. I'm sure many of you are confused by that. but it, Beautiful it, town. Apparently, the government is on the verge of another collapse. Uh, the only thing that will save them is yet another $20 million loan from the wealthy widow, Miss Gloria Teasdale. Uh, actually, in the uh, Paramount radio show uh, made during the production of the film, uh, Miss Teasdale is the widow of the former president, but that's not uh, stated in the film, so I wouldn't make it canon. Well, he, she sort of, she tells Groucho, promise me you'll follow in the footsteps of my husband. She's the widow of, of uh, it's a, on the newspaper, it says Chester Teasdale, doesn't it? I don't know if it says yeah. what he does, but uh, yeah. What she, he was. She's obviously, uh, well, yes, what he did. He's, uh, she's obviously, uh, <laughs> obviously you know, a high-ranking uh, figure. Incidentally, all the, the, those jokes uh, about, you know, I, I held him in my arms and kissed him with him to the end. <laughs> I mean, obviously, you know. People lived in more robust times in which the the finger of mortality was uh, was more capricious. But but bearing in mind her past history, it's a little bit uncomfortable. That isn't it? Sure. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's very game of her, I think, to uh, to do that. Mm -hmm. so. I mean, she always was, or often was, cast as a widow. I guess there are exceptions to that, but. Yeah, it seems to. Well, particularly you know, the, the jokes about her husband dying and it being her, her fault, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Margaret Dumont is back. Um, it seems so natural now, but think about it. At the time, Maggie basically was still a relic of their New York stage days, which they seem to have mm. consciously left behind in Monkey Business and Horse Feathers. So it'd be interesting to know exactly how they came up with her coming back. Uh, did they write the part and figure she'd be great for it, or did they consciously decide we need to get Maggie back in the film? Uh, I, like I, I tend to think that she's she's floated back on a on a, a generous cloud of of animal crackers. I think the the whole of the opening scene is very much modelled on on animal crackers, and uh, she sort of came irresistibly with those those memories. I think from from Kalma and Ruby. You know, if she wasn't available, would they have hired somebody else to play the part? Would they have that's written, interesting, out, yeah. written out the character? Mm. Yeah, like no, it's a chicken or the egg thing. Yeah, so. that's an interesting alternate world that where someone else plays her part. <laughs> well, um, Mrs. Teasdale is obviously concerned that she won't get her money back, but she decides to go ahead and give the money anyhow, and under the condition that uh, the current president steps down. I, I, yes, I, and uh, this is the first of her appearances, isn't it, where yes. she is essentially a, um, a, a comic... Uh, a, a, an entirely yeah. comic persona. In, in the first two, she's a she's a, a straight woman with an absolutely um, realistic background, and this is the yeah. first of the films uh, which all of the following appearances of her will will um, follow yeah. suit with, where she has a completely irrational faith in Groucho, a pre-existing and totally inexplicable faith in Groucho, which is which is the opposite of of uh, how she you know how she behaves in the in the, her first two. Yeah. In the some she's nice to him. Sometimes she's with him because she has to be because of the social situation. But she's very wary of him. Yes, yeah. Yeah, she puts up with him in the first mm. couple. You know, but here it's, he's basically a groupie. Mm. Um, Which then continues through races and so on. In Horse Feathers, the film opens with uh, Wagstaff being appointed head of Huxley. But we have absolutely no backstory as to how that happened or why that's happening. 
I guess this opening is supposed to answer our, our question about why uh, Firefly is the leader of a country, mm. but uh, it doesn't really. It still doesn't <laughs> answer exactly why uh, Teasdale uh, uh, wants him or what she sees in him. From what the later conversation, I get the impression that they hadn't really met or don't really know each other because he didn't know her marriage situation. Or yes, that's right. There's no history as there is in races, is there? Right. Well, the idea that Firefly is, you know, you have no idea how popular he is in Fredonia. Uh, maybe he is somehow a kind of civic folk figure you know and it's she knows about him because he's big with the common people or something maybe he was a big reality tv star or something yeah maybe <laughs> something like that yeah, yeah. okay <laughs> so next we uh we'll get we'll, we'll go down that road in a bit so next is a uh, uh fancy gala to introduce firefly um obviously modeled after the opening of animal crackers we uh except without we any meet, jokes uh, well, I, I I like. I mean, it's not. It's you know, it's it's uh, it's setting up the setting up the premise and the plot and the characters. So yeah, but they do it uh, in a funny way in Animal Crackers. There's, there's jokes. Yeah. In it. We we meet Ambassador Trentino from uh, Slovenia. Um, curious why they make him ambassador as opposed to the president because he basically seems to be running things and declaring war. And uh, he acts like the president, doesn't, doesn't he? Yeah, it's more yeah. more clear in the script that uh, he he mentions the president in the script, old scripts, doesn't he? And, but not in the film. Yes, yeah, odd. And one time he does. There's an offhand mention that he's been recalled by his president, but oh, that's he, about yeah. it. Everything else he seems to be doing on his own, including trying to take over <laughs> the country. Uh, <laughs> and he and uh, we, yeah, we learned that he wants to somehow take over uh, uh, Fridonia. First, he was thinking a revolution, but now he comes up with a plan that maybe he'll, if he marries Mrs. Teasdale, that'll help help him take over the country. I'm not really sure the logic of that, you know, considering that Firefly's already been installed. And, mm. Uh, am I missing something here? How how that would help him take over the country? Well, it's hard to see how a revolution would either. Actually, isn't it? Um, why why any revolution would end in somebody saying, "I know, let let's have another country take us over." <laughs> yeah. I wonder if there's some deliberate effort on the part of the screenwriters to give these characters official titles that um, resist comparison with real world figures. Um, Trentino's the ambassador from Sylvania. Firefly's appointed leader of Fredonia. Yeah. You know, not president or king or prime minister or anything. I, I wonder if they want to, if they were trying to, you know, clue the audience in that this is not supposed to be a stand-in for anybody you know from the headlines. Maybe so, yes. I mean, the the, the Pandu, which is obviously the most extreme um, kind of fake title, is is Mohammed Pandu in one of the scripts, isn't it? So they they've even thinned uh, that yeah. down to 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 take any kind of uh, possibility of real life association away from it. That seems to be your favorite character in the film. You're really fixated. <laughs> Pandu, he fascinates me. Yes, he's my manicurist, if you will. <laughs> So soon we are introduced to uh, the lovely Vera Markel, played by the walking definition of a uh, Mexican Spitfire, uh, Raquel Torres. When we see her, we assume with her sexuality and her uh, underhandedness, the dealing with Trentino, that she's going to have a big part uh, in this film and play a big part in the comedy and the uh, plot lines. And she's going to be a foil for all the brothers and everything. But he really has nothing to do. Uh, obviously, the part was much meatier in earlier scripts, but by the time uh, we get to the final cut here, she really serves no purpose uh, other than for me to look at her low-cut dress frame by frame and <laughs> see if I could see anything uh, unusual there. And can you? Uh, I thought I did one time, but then the <laughs> HD version came out and I had the backtrack. <laughs> 
and that's why we prefer the Absolutely. standard definition version. John Tepdeller has the nerve to say it's an improvement. <laughs> is that what makes his entrance? Is Bob Rowan, uh, secretary to Firefly? Um, Bob Rowland. <laughs> it makes Horatio Jamison seem like the most <laughs> fanciful comic name. Now, wouldn't you think that Groucho would have a more attractive uh, secretary than uh, than this guy? <laughs> I mean, what's what's going on here? <laughs> After some really painfully awkward line readings, I got to say, Zeppo's performance here is absolutely awful. <laughs> He's gotten worse and worse as an actor as the films have gone long, gone on. He does and, seem to uh, get worse, doesn't he? Yeah. <laughs> he seems to get more self-conscious, mm. more embarrassed, mm. maybe. Okay, now listen to this. Um, afterwards, we're going we're gonna to talk about it. As long as I've known him, he's never been late for an appointment. His Excellency is due to take his station, beginning his new administration. He'll make his appearance when the clock on the wall strikes ten. When the clock on the wall strikes ten, all you loyal ladies and you patriotic men, let's sing the national anthem when the clock on the wall strikes ten. Zeppo was speaking, but when he started singing, they obviously dubbed his voice in or lip syncing or something. So we think, okay, they're they're lip syncing the song. But then when Maggie starts singing a few lines in, she's definitely live. You could tell by the ambience and it matches exactly what was going on before. It was definitely live. So I don't know what was going on here. Is hers definitely live? That that's Oh yeah, absolutely. The one thing they didn't have back then, even though they were able to dub, they couldn't match ambience and the studio stuff just totally sticks out like a sore thumb. So yeah, the ambience is there for Maggie, right. which is for Zeppo. Her her part was definitely live. Because I agree he is definitely miming, but I wasn't sure if maybe it was just that hers sounded a bit better. But if if she is definitely singing live, then it is strange because there's no cut, is there's no visual cut. You know, this goes on uh, throughout the film in the various songs where some lines seem to be live and other th- things mm. seem to be uh, be recorded. You know, like when Groucho is singing his song, you hear his footsteps as he's moving around. So you, you could tell mm. he's live. And then other parts of the song are definitely uh, some sort of chorus dubbed in. But uh, it, it's interesting. I'd like to investigate this further. But- From film to film, there, there often seems to be something going on with Zeppo's singing lines. Uh, I've always just sort of instinctively fallen on the side of, I, I tend to think it really is Zeppo, his his voice. Um, but it's a little confounding that every time in the films that Zeppo is given an opportunity to step up and prove that he really can sing, he never quite does. Um, this includes the spoken patter in Animal Crackers, where he just chooses not to sing the notes um, in, you know, I represent the captain, that part. Mm-hmm. And here in Duck Soup, in the We're Going to War number, what does sound like a live recorded line, uh, how I should cry for Firefly, if Firefly should die, uh, again, he, he speaks that instead of singing mm. it. So he, he constantly uh, confounds my efforts to defend him as a singer. So forgive my ignorance here, then I'm going to stand in for the ignorant yeah. listener. Um when uh, Maggie sings her line and she's singing it live, the music that we hear is she uh, uh, is that recording of the music being played in that room behind her and they're mixing it live or I mean, could it be that they had a recording with Zeppo's part already on it, but not anybody else's? Absolutely, yeah. That's that's extremely. That, it's extremely possible. Maybe he just said, "Look, I'm not. I'm not really confident doing this. Can I record it first, <laughs> and then I'll mime it?" And 
I'm sure we're going to have some of the experts chime in and tell me how ridiculous <laughs> I am, and here's what they did. But uh, all I know is that some of it is live and some of it isn't. Hmm. Uh, how, they, how they got to it, uh, I'm open to any suggestion. So anyhow, uh, I know Matthew's not a big fan of this, but I, re- I love the pageantry of this and them, you know, with the big fanfare waiting for uh, uh, Groucho to come in. I mean, I, I've seen this in in a theater with uh, with a neophyte audience, and they're you know people are on edge. Like, what what? How's Groucho going to enter? What's 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 going to be his funny entrance this time? And when it's a tang's there and he doesn't enter at all, you could absolutely you could you could, you could really hear the air let out of the uh, room. Like, well, what's going? On? Where is he? You know, it uh, when, when we've seen it a thousand times. Uh, obviously, the the power of the the moment is gone, but it really worked for the audience that hasn't seen the film. And that, as it turns out, his bedroom is right above this main hall. I mean, I, I think that holds up as as pretty funny stuff. His his bedroom is right above the main hall, which he accesses by sliding down a fire pole. Mm-hmm. Um, that's great. I mean, that is um, that is absurdism and comedy and very effective. <laughs> and as Adamson points out, oh, where's it? Adamson. Somebody points out that. Uh, uh, when he slides on the pole, you don't question him as much as who designed the room in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> Firefly eventually makes his way into the proceedings, and uh, we get the uh, classic uh, Groucho Maggie encounter. Uh, and I start laughing after a long wait. As chairwoman of the reception committee, I welcome you with open arms. Is that so? How late do you stay open? I've sponsored your appointment. Because I feel you are the most able statesman in all Fredonia. Well, that covers a lot of ground. Say, you cover a lot of ground yourself. You better beat it. I hear they're going to tear you down and put up an office building where you're standing. This might be a good time to mention that this opening sequence between the editing and the reshoots and everything is quite different than it was originally conceived. There are quite a bit of stills of deleted moments, excerpts of cut song verses, and even uh, newspaper reports of it being reworked. So the, the original version was... Seem to be much longer and more music heavy, but here they uh, look like they wanted to get to the comedy uh, uh, quicker. You could hear some of the original version on the uh, Paramount on Parade radio show, which we'll post on our blog. There are some different jokes and some jokes that are missing. And for those really paying attention, you could ID a lot of this reshoot stuff by uh, checking on Groucho's jacket, which uh, for the most part during the scene is uh, jet black, but uh, during his... uh, first encounter with Maggie and at the very end when he's standing after the song when he's standing with the uh, guards it is a gray jacket with black trim um, it's actually the same jacket he wore in horse feathers uh, exactly why they didn't use the original jacket we don't know I was looking to see whether it had gotten destroyed at some point later in the film but I couldn't find such a moment so maybe it was just uh, uh, bad continuity I don't even know whether there was a continuity director on the film the cuts to the song baffle me because they're obviously they're obviously done post post production. You can actually hear the the edits, and um, they are funny verses and things that have just been snipped. The only possible reason being to make that song shorter, and therefore I suppose the only possible reason to to fit something else in. But why they would take funny verses out of Groucho's big specialty song and leave in? All that when the clock on the wall strikes ten stuff, which doesn't have a joke in it, doesn't even try to be funny. It just goes on and on and on, waiting for him to come in. When the clock on the wall, it's it's just, there's no point to it. And they leave that, and they actually chop 
funny verses out of Groucho's song. That, I must admit, I can't follow the logic of that. I, I certainly uh, would love to have those cut Groucho verses, um, which are funny and, and superior to a lot of what was kept. But I don't know, isn't it a matter of pacing? Like, the more we build up to Groucho's entrance uh, when he doesn't show up, the, the more it... Um, lets the air out of the room as bob says yeah i'd be happy with both yeah but if something's got to go yeah i'm with you, you know if something's got to go there seems to be plenty of good material that was randomly cut out you know maybe mccary was just so used to the two real format that he was still that mindset and that's why we got a 70 minute film out of something that very easily could have gone 90 minutes Yes, partly that, I think, but also I think because he had those two big new bits to, to stick in, the lemonade stand and the mirror. So I think the, the policy has been to, to go through it and, and prune. And a lot of that is, is obviously done at, at the script stage, but, but not all. So we get another callback to Animal Crackers with a, the short letter dictation scene to Zeppo. As you guys mentioned earlier, there was originally in the script quite a bit longer with uh, Firefight dictating start or trying to dictate a letter to the president of the United States. Uh, it certainly was uh, good material, but uh, it's all gone now. And we quickly get to Groucho's uh, wonderful Laws of My Administration uh, song. Uh, it's actually my favorite of Groucho's tunes. Uh, I don't really count away for Captain Spaulding because he only has about three lines in, in that one. But uh, sorry, all you Lydia fans. This is the attitude of a Groucho song. Not the cutesy lyrics about Washington uh, crossing the Delaware. <laughs> this is the Groucho. This is what I want to hear from Groucho. This is the attitudes I want to yeah. hear coming out of his mouth. Yeah, I agree. It's a good piece. I, I don't think I like it quite as much as the uh, equivalent number in Horse Feathers, but um, but it's good stuff. Uh, one thing I, I always just notice about this song is that it has no ending. It just very abruptly stops. Um, Groucho singing his kind of falsetto harmony part with his trousers up, as uh, Margaret Dumont tells him. <laughs> and then there's like a cymbal crash, and we're right out of the number. And for some reason, Maggie has to tell me he has a uh, appointment at the... Uh, at the House of Representatives. Yeah, I, doesn't he have a secretary to tell him about his appointment? Zeppo seems to have, uh, abs Zeppo seems to have left in the middle of the song as he's... Uh, <laughs> as is his habitual way. <laughs> so now it's time to uh, finally meet Harpo as uh, Firefly... Uh, runs out of the building for his appointment. Uh, his driver, Pinky, pulls up in his motorcycle and sidecar, takes his photograph, and actually pulls out a little pad of paper and a pencil. But then there's a little cut where he's putting mm. it away. So there was a gag there that uh, was cut. I don't know. Was he asking for an autograph? I don't know what he was doing. We get a sample he, of his handwriting. He's, presumably, he's taking his photograph for, for Trentino, isn't he? But by the time we find out that he's spying for Trentino, we've forgotten that he that he did that. <laughs> So yeah, it's, yeah, it's it's very subtle moments. Nice little touch, yeah. Only. Yeah. So then, of course, we get the first of the running gags with Groucho uh, hopping in the sidecar and Harpo pulling away uh, without him. It's a pretty it's a pretty basic gag, but uh, I don't know what to say. Kids, kids love it. <laughs> I loved it when I, I loved yeah. it when I was a kid. <laughs> you you know, right from the moment that gag is introduced, you know exactly what's going to happen each time it comes back, and yet, um, in all likelihood especially in, in earlier viewings of it, um, you laugh in spite of its obviousness. We now cross the border. We're now in the country of Sylvania where Trentino is uh, berating a uh, guy for uh, uh, failing to start the, the revolution like he had planned. 
Oh, yes. Sylvania is introduced, isn't it, with a with a photograph or a, a little piece of film of a library footage, presumably of a real place. I don't know if anybody's ever tracked down where yeah. it is, but it's obviously. I think it's New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> it is. A, it's a lovely, charming little uh, Ruritonian uh, place, isn't it? I'm I'm surprised mm. if nobody has uh, worked out where it is. Trentino is berating this guy. Who is he, uh, Noah? It's the actor's name is Leonid Kinsky. He plays Sasha, the amorous waiter in Casablanca. Um, and he'd just been in Trouble in, in Paradise. With, yeah, oh, yes. Fooey, fooey, fooey. Yeah, he really, he really invests this one little scene and just a couple of lines with so much drama. It really seems like we're meeting a character here who we might learn something about as the film goes on. Of course, we don't. Mm. Uh, but he's a, a very compelling figure, isn't he? This kind of disheveled revolutionary figure who is uh, um, bemoaning Firefly's power in Fredonia. And what's the actor's name again? <laughs> Leonid Kinsky. I was interested to learn that he was actually in the pilot episode of Hogan's Heroes, ah. but chose not to continue in the part because he did not find it funny or appropriate. <laughs> and, and of course, Leonid Kinsky later assembled the book Art Ducko. <laughs> so that's where they got all those pictures. <laughs> so now let's talk about Trentino for a moment. Is, uh, is he really such a bad guy? I mean, gover- Fredonia's government is... Uh, in shambles, and they've just installed this new leader who doesn't look like he's going to help much. Uh, maybe it's in everyone's best interest if Sylvania does uh, <laughs> intervene and take over. For their own good, yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I'll say Louis Calhoun is wonderful. Uh, he is one of the one of the great heavies the Marx Brothers ever had. He's the he? next best thing, isn't he, to uh, to Louis Sorin, I think. He's he's the closest yeah. they've had since. I love that there's a the bit when uh, when, when – um, Chico says he gets mad because he can't read. He says, no, I see. You know, really love And it really reminds me of Chandler. You know, it's got, it's got an N at the start. No, I see. Really good. He's, he's good value all through, isn't he? This is a lovely scene, isn't it, with Chico and Harpo? Great scene. Chico's uh, whole speech about spying and shadowing on Shadow Day is one of the great absurd yeah. Chico runs. Yeah. And it seems like the direct inspiration for his... Uh, speech about flying across the ocean in, in their next film. Absolutely. Um, actually, uh, before the guys come in, we get a historic moment when the secretary announces him. Let's listen to it. Ambassador, Ciccolini and Pinky are here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we get Chico's name, or at least yeah. a variation of it, uh, pronounced uh, correctly. That's true. Because it would be Ciccolini. It's interesting that despite the fact that he just balled out this failed agitator, that Trentino is... So forgiving to Harpo and Chico, despite the fact that they totally failed on their mission and that, uh, you know, they're harassing him there. <laughs> um, he should be more upset. Um, I could picture Thalberg sitting there in the audience watching this thinking, somebody punch <laughs> Harpo for Christ's sake. <laughs> yeah, it's a little comparable to like Margaret Dumont's faith in, yeah. in Groucho, isn't it? Uh, Trentino just believes in these spies and. Yes, it's like them working for, um, Algie Briggs is enemy. Oh, help! No, yeah, it's like when he takes them on as bodyguards, yeah. isn't it? It's the same, uh, yeah. same bizarre faith in them. Yeah, yes, yeah, so they just exude competence. So. <laughs> and for some unknown reason, he, he gives he gives them another shot uh, uh, for absolutely no rational reason. And uh, we get the beautiful, great moment as the scene ends with Trentino's hand in a mouse trap, his coattail cut, yes. and a newspaper glued to his butt. Uh, 
Also, there's another <laughs> glorious bit of Harpo magic because we so we so totally buy into Harpo and the things he can do. We sometimes forget uh, that uh, what is actually being done by filmmakers is pretty good. And I and I mentioned in the in our monkey business show the the frog jumping into his hat and just wondering how that was done. We don't really think about it because you know it's Harpo and he can do that. Here we have that absolutely mm. wonderful shot of the record flying up into the air being shot by yeah. and exploding into into a myriad fragments. Now, how did they actually do that? Did they shoot a record in the air? That's a cutaway. I know, but how did they do it? Did they really throw a record in the air and shoot it? How do you make a record okay. explode in midair in 1933? Um, let me look that up on Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> I can't, it's very impressive. Actually. It's fabulous. Maybe it's somehow like perforated or pre-scored in some yeah. way so they knew how it would... But it's still very impressive. It's a lovely shot. On this recent uh, viewing, um, Amanda, my wife, noticed that in this scene, uh, on two occasions, characters get Harpo to stop doing what he's doing by saying, ah, ah, ah. <laughs> Harpo begins to follow Trentino's secretary out of the room. And Chico has to get his attention back by going, ah, 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 ah. Um, and then Trentino does it to him again, too. It's it's like sort of the way you would discipline an animal, telling Harpo, like, no, no. Ah, 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 ah. I read in one of these books that this uh, young girl who plays his secretary did show up in a further McCary film. So maybe he was the one doing the chasing. Ah. Um, anyhow, we cut back to Fridonia, where Firefly is now in his chamber of deputies and uh, totally ignoring their advice and insulting them brutally. I mean, come on. This stretches the credibility of the film. I mean, what pres what president would treat his experienced advisors that way? I mean, that would never happen in a million years. Uh, oh, oh, wait. Yeah. Uh, never, yeah. Never mind. I don't know. Okay. Maybe he wants to build a wall and make uh, Raquel Torres okay. pay for it. So we. So uh, I should just say, instantly before we before we move on, um, yeah. that we're we're at this this is the point in the film where we are at our most deep into the flywheel rewrites. Um, both the Chamber of Deputies scene and the the previous one uh, with with Trentino um, don't appear in anything like that 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 form in the in the original script, and they're absolutely studded with uh, jokes from Flywheel. So these two sequences mm -hmm. are, I would imagine, um, one of the presumably one of the last um, bits of new uh, verbal material to to have been added, and presumably from a conscious decision to use to use. Mm -hmm. um, flywheel material and somebody must have said hey hang on we've got those those shows we can use that it's a shame that this was the only film that uh mined that material there were there were so many other times down the line where they could have they could have done with a bit of it yeah yeah not least yeah. the big store of course which is ostensibly based on one of those shows isn't it yeah so anyhow we cut outside and we see right underneath uh firefly's window is chicolini's peanut stand uh some wonderful security there in fredonia um <laughs> It says in one of the early scripts, doesn't it, that um, Trentino has, has actually deliberately placed him there to annoy Firefly and to uh, to disrupt in in that incredibly minor way the the, the meetings of the uh, of the deputies by him just shouting peanuts by the window. That's that's actually part of Trentino's plan. So Pinky comes by and uh, he and Ciccolini get into a little scrap uh, to the. Uh Slight amusement of the nearby lemonade vendor, played by the great Edgar Kennedy, a veteran of McCary's time at, at Hal Roach and one of the great Laurel and Hardy files. 
when the when the scrap uh, spills over towards Kennedy's uh, lemonade stand and starts uh, bothering him and his customers, he tells uh, Harpo to back off, and uh, that that's pretty much enough to set him off. Mm-hmm. Uh, he uh, tries to pickpocket him, cuts his uh, pocket out with the scissors, uh, gives him his leg, and then engages him in the a variation of the classic uh, hat switching routine uh, from the Laurel and Hardy days. Uh, but this obviously is a whole whole different premise and a whole different. Uh, style is this the last leg leg bit in the in their films is this the last time he does the leg bit oh apart from in um whatever it was stage door canteen or something but in in their actual films i believe so it could be the last one couldn't it chico does it as well here yes he does yeah very nicely and it's also one of the last times that we get the signifying um uh, what's the matter you know speak one one of the last times that uh (laughs) he he doesn't rather than can't speak isn't it because obviously chico would would know if he couldn't so he obviously can so as i was saying they were getting to the uh hat switching routine which won't hurt uh did quite often, but this one is a whole different premise. Uh, Laurel and Hardy couldn't get their right hats on to save their lives, but here Harpo is uh, messing things up just to to get under uh, Kennedy's skin. So it, it it plays totally differently. It plays into their character, and uh, I I, lo- I love the timing of it. I love uh, when Harpo is handing Kennedy his hat and drops it just as Kennedy's reaching for it. It's, it the timing is really good, and you really get a feel for how Harpo would have worked. Uh, in silent films, I think he would have really uh, shined there. Even though he's a mute, this is real silent film material that they're doing here. Yeah, and Checo's good too, isn't he? Checo does the bit where he puts the two hats on at the same time, and then they, he just lifts off one of them. So they're, they're, they're both um, as good as each other here, I think. It's expertly uh, performed. I mean, it's, it's, it's very competently done. And along with a couple other sequences in Duck Soup, it is indeed an old idea, but with a refreshing new Marxian spin. Um, but my, my complaint about this sequence is that Edgar Kennedy is not, doesn't seem like a worthy, uh, victim for Harpo and Chico. They seem to be punching down in this scene. Um, he's not pretentious. He's not powerful. Um, he doesn't have any of the usual satisfying, um, quasi virtues of the standard Marx brothers, uh, adversaries. I agree. Yes. And and I just find his bluster in this context a, a bit unwelcome, just a, a bit overdone. Hmm. I'm grum- I'm grumbling here. I have no problem with that. I think it's I think it's wonderful. You know, you know, they really had no reason to go after uh, Roscoe W. Chandler either, but they went after him. So. He's a fraud, isn't he? And he's a, you know, I mean, I, I like the guy too, but he's a, you know, he's a stuffy aristocrat at a fancy party. It just seems like, um, especially since Edgar Kennedy's character here is just trying to do his job. You know, he's just a, a humble peanut vendor trying to make a living. Um, I don't know if he, if he did something to, uh, deserve this onslaught, I, I might be more on board. Well, you got to remember these guys are spies. So maybe this is part of their master plan. <laughs> <laughs> okay. There's, there's a lot more underneath the surface here. I did want, I did want to mention that the song that, uh, Chico, um, sings and Groucho also throughout this, um, is a real piece called The Peanut Vendor. Peanuts! Hey! Peanuts to you! It's a Cuban song, um, that was, uh, written by a guy named 
Moises Simons. It was first recorded in, uh, yeah, a very Cuban name, <laughs> Moises. Um, and it was first recorded in 1927, but most popularly recorded in 1930. So it was quite, you know, it was popular at the time Duck Soup was made. Then we have a very awkward transition from the peanut stand to another scene at the peanut stand. This firefly pokes out the window and wants a bag. And they get to talking, and for some reason, Chicolina gets called upstairs and is offered a job of Secretary of War. <laughs> I mean, how are we supposed to believe this? I mean, a president offering a crucial position to someone totally unqualified <laughs> just because he got a bag of peanuts? I mean, come on now. That, that, that would never... Well, never mind. Now we get a good, uh, but pointless Chico Groucho scene. There's a lot of good gags, though. It doesn't really have the focus of some of their, their more um, iconic... Uh, discussions i love groucho's fury at the end though then we save money on chairs and he just lunges at him doesn't he kicks him out of the room very good then we get one of the rare groucho harpo scenes actually i shouldn't say rare because we get two of them in this film yeah it's highlighted uh by the famous tattoo gag that is done way better than it has any right to be done. I mean, it's quite breathtaking how believable it is even uh, in, in 2019. I mean, it's just really well done. Yeah. It always gets a surprised reaction in in the theater. And, of course, uh, talking about this gag uh, always uh, warrants the mention of the original concept of it being an outhouse that where the door swings open and hand pulls it closed, which I guess would have been funny, but uh, I think uh, I don't think it could have been better than what, what we actually do get. The earlier draft of the screenplay um, makes a lot more out of Harpo being covered with tattoos, and there's a lot more gags and, and another sequence um, that was later cut that involves a lot of Harpo body art and uh, even uh, makes you wonder if... I, I don't think it did, but the... It, you can't not think of Lydia, the tattooed lady, because um, so much is made of Harpo being being covered with body art. At one point, Harpo um, has the um, war plans tattooed on his back, and that's how they they get them. But then, rather inexplicably, um, it gets showered off of him by rain, which is not the way tattoos are supposed to work. And there is also a mention of Washington crossing the Delaware, isn't there? Yeah, that's right. And also this extraordinary moment, which I'm sure um, you all you all joined with me in, in conjuring up terrifying mental images, uh, this this bit of, uh, of stage direction. There is a terrific explosion and all of Harpo's clothes are blown off him, leaving him in nothing but running pants and ladies' silk stockings. His body <laughs> is yeah. literally covered with tattoos. Yeah, there was a whole sequence where Harpo, um, they, they're trying to uh, recruit spies and specifically attractive female yes. spies. And they have a whole room full of young women, one of whom is Harpo in drag, um, coming to more or less audition for um, to become spies for Fredonia. And this process is overseen by Chico as the Secretary of War. So at the end of this tattoo gag, we get uh, Groucho asking if he has a picture of his grandfather on him, and Harpo appears to turn around and seems like he's going to be pulling down his pants, but uh, once again, he gets stopped. Ah, ah, ah. <laughs> <laughs> so after Harpo leaves, Zeppel enters and gets perhaps the biggest laugh of his career. <laughs> First laugh of his career, yeah. <laughs> Inten Intentional laugh that, uh, when he reaches onto his head and sees that he only has half a hat, uh, thanks to <laughs> Scissor Crazy uh, Pinky. Uh, he then advises uh, Firefly to insult Trentino, like he needs to be told to do that. 
Um, but he does that so Trentino will strike him and they could kick Trentino out of the country. And then it evolves into a nice little bit with a about a dirty joke that apparently originated with Mrs. Teasdale. <laughs> Finally, Groucho uh, learns about uh, Teasdale's garden party and makes his way off on Harpo Cycle and Buggy again and again gets left behind. The structure is interesting, isn't it? Groucho has a scene with Chico, then a scene with Harpo, then a scene with Zeppo. He sort of sees them one at a time. We now go to one of the rare location shoots in the Marks catalog, the fancy garden party Mrs. Teasdale is throwing. It's being held, it's being shot at the, actually, what's it called? The Jewett Estate in uh, Pasadena. Uh, and that still exists, although uh, private property, you could actually uh, drive up to the gate and see uh, the pathway where uh, Harpo was riding his uh, buggy. It was a popular filming location. Buster Keaton used it. It's still being used uh, to this day for a movie and TV uh, location. Groucho arrives, and uh, note we see his name being announced, and then cut away to the crowd. When we cut back, Groucho has already handed his top hat to the garden and is making his way into the party. Uh, what I think was cut here was the remnant of a running gag that was in earlier versions of the script where Groucho kept pulling a rabbit out of his top hat. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, it looks like it might have been cut here. But uh, Groucho makes his way into the Fridonia National Anthem where we hear everybody singing, but we don't actually see anybody <laughs> singing in typical McCary fashion. Um, and my favorite ever Marx Brothers close-up, the, the donut in, in... Oh, yes, I was about to bring that. Yeah, Groucho <laughs> grabs a donut off a lady's plate, or takes a few steps and stops and dunks his... Uh, uh, donut in somebody else's coffee, but for some reason, McCary needed to see an extreme close-up of the donut <laughs> going into the coffee. <laughs> it is kind of great, though, because it shows you that not only is he stealing someone's donut and dunking it in someone else's coffee, he's oh. doing it so sloppily. <laughs> he's he's so inconsiderate mm. as to get coffee all over the hand of the person whose <laughs> coffee he's mm. borrowing. Just brazenly um, boorish and rude and awful. <laughs> so... um uh, Zeppo's plan backfires when Firefly insults Trentino, but Trentino does not strike him back. Uh, he starts, he, he's about to, but then he starts to walk away and Firefly goes after him and ends up, uh, escalating the argument and Firefly ends up striking him, uh, possibly sending these countries in the war. So that's what happens when you take advice from Zeppo. <laughs> Mrs. Teasdale then uh, tells Firefly she needs to speak to him, and Firefly says, well, they will later at the theater, but we never get a theater scene, do we? No, it's in the early draft. It's in the early um, draft, and it's very funny, isn't it? It it's is, It's full yeah. of good jokes. I love the, the usher saying to Chico, I'm sorry, gentlemen, you have the wrong seats, and Chico says, that's all right, we're not enjoying ourselves anyway. <laughs> what a great yes. joke. <laughs> yes, and, and there, at one point, the question of where Groucho is um, is asked, I think, by uh, Mrs. Teasdale. Um, and it turns out he's in uh, Vera's dressing room. And she says, well, what could he be doing there? And Chico says, well, he could be playing solitaire, but I don't <laughs> think so. So Firefly comes to uh, Pinky Cycle, and for the third time, he uh, says he won't get fooled again. Mm. And, of course, we all know what's going to happen. But uh, McCary actually <laughs> executes this really well, uh, and it does it does get a huge laugh every time I see the film in a mm -hmm. uh, public setting. Absolutely. And then what what could be funnier than another another go through of the uh, sidecar gag? Some more of the lemonade stand. Well, I'm all for I'm all for it. I'd, I'd, I'd watch an hour of this stuff. I love it. 
I'm sorry. And this time Kennedy's actually more deserving as he uh, as he's grabbing peanuts without without pain. So he, he warrants all the all the discomfort and tragedy that befalls him. That's true. I love uh, Kennedy's slow burn as Harpo is dancing in the lemonade as the scene fades out. Yes, his willful ignoring of what's going on, isn't it? It's like it's very skillfully done. He, he looks everywhere but where where that noise is coming from, doesn't he? <laughs> oh yeah, and there doesn't seem to be much concern about this burning uh, peanut stand up against the palace. Yeah, <laughs> just toss it to the side. <laughs> yeah. It's fine. Let's see. Now it's the evening. I don't know. They're they're dressed up. Maybe they've come back from the theater. I don't know, but. We see Trentino and Vera at Mrs. Teasdale, where she apparently has offered the broker peace and calls Firefly over. He arrives and, for some reason, entrusts her with the war plans. Uh, I'm not sure exactly <laughs> why that happens, why she's entrusting, why he's entrusting her, or what the logic is for that. But then we get a classic uh, Groucho wooing of her, asking for the lock of her hair. Was, was Maggie bald? I don't know if she was bald, but she did wear a stage wig. I don't know what was under it. Not much, I think. I mean, or certainly I've 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 read that 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 it's uh, she you know she wore one at all times. Obviously, we'll we'll find mm-hmm. out more soon when the uh, when the book is finally done. But uh, oh, my understanding yeah. is this is yet another um, sort of cruel joke that that you know tiptoes <laughs> on a very thin uh, line of uh, reality. Then comes a moment I've seen this film a thousand times, and I I noticed like one or two new things this uh, last night when I watched it again. Uh, when Trentino and um, Vera enter, Groucho and Maggie get up to uh, greet them, and when they cut to the next shot of of them of them approaching, Maggie actually takes the war plans and puts them down the front of her dress, which I had, <laughs> I had never noticed before. It's a real subtle thing, and I don't know why it was done, but in one of the early drafts, Groucho tells her, um, "Put these plans where no one will ever find them." Sleep with them. Huh. At least he doesn't get stuck on the ceiling going after them. <laughs> Here's something that's a bit unusual. I wonder if you guys uh, picked up on this. Uh, when uh, Firefly and Trentino are bickering, um, Trentino motions over to uh, to Avira to go over and help him out. So she goes up to Firefly and says, Oh, Your Excellency, isn't there something I can do? You know, she's definitely coming on to him. Mm. But And his response is, Yes, but I'll talk to you about that later. She was actually coming on to him, mm, so, mm. you know, it's not like Groucho <laughs> made a joke yeah. out of something that wasn't sexual, because she was being sexual with him, you know? Yes, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, and to top it off, she, <laughs> se- right. she seems shocked by the response. <laughs> <laughs> it's like he has nothing in his vocabulary to respond to a direct, sincere, yes, come yes. on. <laughs> he, he can't process it. <laughs> it's probably the only time, isn't it? That's like, Apart from... Um, I suppose flow up to a point, but even even she, you know, is is very careful not to go that far. Yeah, yeah. And now uh, I guess we need to we need to talk about the most uh, uncomfortable moment in the film. The uh, this moment here. Maybe I am a little headstrong, but I come by it honestly. My father was a little headstrong. My mother was a little Armstrong. The headstrongs married the Armstrongs, and that's why Dockies were born. Now I know this is going to give Eric Grayson and John Tefteller strokes. But I actually would like to see that line cut from all versions of the film, uh, except for home video. I mean, that means like all TV showings, all public screenings. I'd like to see that line cut. Because when there's an unsuspecting audience, 
they're not going to know what they're not going to know the context of the line. They're, it's just going to bother people. I, you know, for home video, for people buying the film, I think it's fine. Let let them have it. But for public screenings, I think it's maybe best that 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 line goes away. It, it does bum out public screenings. That's true. I mean, if I if I if I thought of these films in, in if I cared about these films surviving as as public public things then yes it is certainly true that it that the film does have to start again after that but uh no i would never ever say it should be cut yeah well I, you know like i said it would for every version that that people would own it would be there it would just be for screenings where un, where unsuspecting audiences or kids or people are, are are seeing it i i i could definitely see the logic in that it's been done to, it's been done to other films yeah but the reference is so um, lost now. I mean, nobody, you know, if if one got the reference, you know, it's a reference to an old song of the early 30s called That's Why Darkies Were Born, which is a sort of satirical take on racism, or a, at least a kind of um, sympathetic take on, on um, the lot of um, marginalized people. Um, specifically in the United States. But since nobody is likely to get that reference, it just sounds like a strange use of an ethnic slur for reasons which are obscure. Well, it's, it's obviously a reference to something, isn't it? I think I, I, even if you don't know the yeah. song, it's obviously not a line of the film. He's obviously quoting yes. something. So I, I think it, it, you know, you, it would never lose that much. Um, and then, you know, there's, there's so many lines that go over most people's heads. Um, I just, I don't know. I mean, I'd like to see the, the horse race cut out. You know, I'd like to see the rabbit being held by its ears by Chico and out in the circus cut out. But, you know, where, mm. where do you draw the line? And I'd also cut out, um, go west, uh, <laughs> all of it. When we see directed by, I cut from there to uh, the, the, the boys shaking hands at the end of the film. I would lose all that. Yeah. It's uh, interestingly when I first saw Duck Soup as a child, I always thought it was that's why donkeys. <laughs> which there you go. Doesn't make any more sense, but it doesn't offend me. <laughs> okay, let's move on. Next we go where we see Trentino quickly got back to Sylvania. These these capitals seem to be pretty close together. And for some reason, he seems to know that uh, Mrs. Teasdale has got the war plans. But of more interest, we learn that Firefly is staying over at Mrs. Teasdale's house, and Vera is there as well. So, I don't know, it's a bit scandalous, the three of them under one roof, right? The- well, in one of the early scripts, he comes down his pole again, doesn't he? Hey, 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 hey. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> Let's see where he's in bed with crackers. He he, uh, he does another fireman's pole entrance da- down into the scene with Trentino there and uh, and Maggie. He's always upstairs from wherever he's expected. <laughs> mm. Mm. So Ciccolini and Pinky arrived to help Vera get the war plans. Um, again, it's just a slight twist of uh, the typical Laurel and Hardy premise that they can't get through the door. They seem to be having more fun not getting through it than they could. You like this bit? You guys like this bit? <laughs> no, not I really. Do. Not much. Uh, for me, this, and also I'm sure we're about to discuss the mirror scene. Uh, for me, they're, they both of these are successful examples of the Marx Brothers doing uncharacteristic material in a, a characteristic way. And yeah, there's a sweetness to it that I, I can't resist. Just for the reason you say, Bob, they're having so much more fun not doing what they're supposed to be doing. They don't seem to be dopey or stupid. They just seem to be out of sync, I don't know, or something. Finally, Vera yeah, Finally, Vera brings them in the side door, 
and we get a big fat red herring here is when we cut inside, there's a big piano front and center. And I'm sure everybody who watches the film goes, oh, here we go. Mm. Piano solo's coming any moment now. But we never get it. We don't, we don't get Chico doing one fucking one note on the piano. It's just there, it's just there as a prop and actually gets used by Harpo to strum, uh, some of the, uh, Big Bad Wolf song. There's an on-set candidate of him playing it, isn't it? Sat next to Groucho. So he's, he's, he played it on the set, but he, yeah. he doesn't play it in the damn film. And and though we've gone through it several times before, uh, Matthew, you want to run through this Big Bad Wolf song again and why it's notable? Okay. Um, yeah, after after the film had been completed, the um, notice appears in the trades that they're coming back to do a reshoot to make use of what, uh, I think it's Variety, one of the, uh, one of the trades, uh, refers to as the new American national anthem, which is the song Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf, which had been a huge hit in the, the Disney film, I think, the year before. Um, everyone was singing this song, and uh, it was decided... Help is a- on the way! <laughs> Very good. Um, yeah, everybody was singing this song, so it was decided to incorporate it into this film. Um, we know that they they did go and shoot something. We know that it that it didn't end up in the film. We know that the only trace of the piece is uh, the little version of it, that the tinkly version that Harpo briefly uh, plucks piano harp accompaniment to. Uh, and we know that, that that there are a series of stills uh, featuring Groucho with, with women who don't appear in the, in the finished film who look a bit like shepherdesses. So that might have something to do with it. Other than that, we, we know virtually nothing other than that it was a, a tacked on sequence. It involved the song. Groucho was apparently playing the big bad wolf in it. Um, and that's all we know. And, uh, although certainly wisely it was, it was taken out, but I'd love to know what on earth was in it, what they thought they were doing and why they changed their minds. Also note a few minutes later, we get another reference when Groucho is locked in the bathroom. Well, that's your game, eh? I'll huff and I'll puff and I'll blow your door in. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. So Chickalini and Pinky both overhear Mrs. Teasdale wake Firefly and ask him to come over and uh, retrieve the war plans. And uh, here we go. Chico locks Groucho in his bathroom, puts on a nightgown, cap, and luckily finds another pair of Groucho's glasses there. <laughs> <laughs> Along with a little bit of yeah, grease paint. Yeah, then, of course, yeah, as Matthew details in his book, the grease paint uh, on the dressing table brings up all sorts of possibilities and questions. <laughs> Although it has been suggested to me that it's an ashtray. And he's using ash. I, I yeah. must. I must at least. That has. That point has been made to me in response to the uh, to that comment in the book. <laughs> I think the well. I think the jury's out, but it's a it's a reasonable uh, suggestion. Okay. Okay. Let's not go down that rabbit hole. Harpo. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Maybe Rufus T. Firefly is appearing in blackface. <laughs> Harpo amazingly comes up with the same plan and. Finds another identical nightgown and another <laughs> pair of Groucho's glasses, which he seemed to have left all over the place. Too bad Zeppo didn't take part <laughs> of this, because think about it, an unfunny Zeppo might have been the, the funniest one of them all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and if we could have seen Zeppo in that makeup, it would tell us, uh, make us feel slightly closer to uh, the, the times mm. that he went on for Groucho. Yeah. 
<laughs> it is kind of a new idea in Duck Soup. It feels like in this this sequence with Harpo and Chico making up as Groucho, and then later in the war sequence when they paint Groucho's mm. face onto the uh, vase mm. that he ha- or the big yeah. urn that gets over his head, they seem to be acknowledging that the Groucho makeup has become a an iconic image. I, yeah. I don't think there's been a time previously in the films where Groucho's look is recreated that way. Well, there is some good stuff in Maggie's room with the three of them running around. I, I agree with Joe Adamson, who mentions that something this ripe with possibilities doesn't quite live up to its potential. It's good, but it, it could have really been something great. I'd love to have seen an extended scene with the three of them running around all dressed as Groucho and talking as themselves. Yeah, yeah much more of that, you know, in and out the door stuff. Yeah, this is the closest that we ever get to a, a Napoleon scene descendant in Duck Soup, and it's one of the more half-hearted takes on that concept. And like I said, not that the material isn't good, it's just that it's so brief that it yeah. moves on way earlier than it needs to. Anyhow, so now we're, we're here we are with the iconic mirror scene. So I don't know what to say about this that hasn't been said before, but uh, from my experiences seeing the Mark Films in public, this always gets the biggest laughs of any of any scene that they that they do um particularly the moment when groucho spins around and harpo catches him right at the end of the spin yeah that gets a genuine huge laugh and usually breaks into applause of course the baron soundtrack was uh necessary because mccary was obviously giving them direct verbal directions and cues yes very much like it. um the footage yeah. that we've got of um deputy seraph you know where wait where's he gone look you know, the, yeah. with, over over Harper's piece, you can hear the director cueing him there. You know, Chico's vanished. So, hey, where's he gone? Look, you know, you can just hear McGarry doing all that, can't you? But the thing about that is nobody probably ever noticed that until the film was on TV many yes, years later. Yeah. Because when you see it in a theater, there's no way you would notice that there's no sound because the laughter would certainly drown out any type of footsteps or patter that would be going on. The only new thought I had this time around about, about the scene watching it um bearing in mind that the the one thing that everybody does notice that kind of takes them out of it out of it a bit which is that he smashes the glass the glass disappears and there's for some reason this mirror is is between two identical rooms and ev- everybody spots <laughs> yeah. that you know that's not me being a curmudgeon so <laughs> wouldn't it wouldn't it have just been easier if groucho had come down to an actual uh entranceway between two rooms yeah catches sight of harpo and harpo just freezes and and pretends to be a mirror image as if it was a mirror wouldn't that Good have point. just been simpler i guess that's yeah because Groucho's not intimately familiar with the with the, the layout of the house so harpo just makes him think it's a mirror rather than actually <laughs> smashing a mirror that disappears in a in an impossible position in the house I also find it interesting that they didn't score this with uh, music afterwards. Some some musical stings and everything. I don't think it would have ruined it, but uh might have been an interesting way to approach the uh, soundtrack here. Yeah, I'm glad they didn't. There's a there's the John Cleese um yeah. program about comedy where he uses that clip and they do they do score it. Um and it and it does spoil it, I think. Among other things, it's just a, an example of like we tend to place a very high value on the Marx Brothers material. And of course, their best films tend to be the ones with the best material. Uh, but the mirror scene does remind us that even given a piece of material that they have no particular claim to that's been done all over the place by everybody, it's a very standard comedic premise. Um, and they're able to wring twist after twist out of it and, and 
turn it into something that's not only very much theirs, but, uh, but notably, uh, builds on every other incarnation of it. I certainly agree with, uh, the point that Matthew and others have made that this is in no way a characteristic Marx Brothers scene. You know, it's, it's not something to show people to, to say this is what the Marx Brothers are all about. Um, but it turns into this like deeply existential argument about what it means to be a real person, you know, <laughs> by, by the time Groucho is handing Harpo the hat that he dropped. Mm. Um, and as Joe Adamson points out, there's nothing at this point Harpo could do to convince Groucho that he is anything other than his reflection. You know, they really do intellectualize and, and, and build on the whole idea of that, that mirror routine. And, uh, I, I, I do love the sequence. I, to me, it's, it's, um, it is different for them, but in a way that's novel rather than uh, a violation. That's why, like I said, that we should be so grateful that we got this teaming of McCary and the Marxists because the Marxists couldn't have done this scene without McCary and vice versa. So we just have to appreciate the unique magic that they brought each other. And obviously a lot of the stuff they never, neither one of them ever did again. So we just have to take it for what it was instead of thinking of how it might have been without them. Yeah, obviously it's very funny. I do like it. I find I, I find it very funny. Um, but obviously, I particularly like the the characteristic touches where it where it undermines itself, like where they when when they literally switch positions and yet still mm-hmm. still act as if the cover hasn't been blown. Then obviously, when when Checo blunders on twice, that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, it's mm-hmm. not it's not that I don't find it funny. Obviously, compared to some of the stuff in the later MGMs, you know, who wouldn't uh, who wouldn't love it? It's just that when you've got seventy minutes uh and each scene has to has to fight for the right to be there um i would just rather see if i you know if i was spoilt for choice i would rather see something that only they could do whereas this is something that most competent comedians could do in their place um there's loads of really funny dialogue stuff in those scripts that's been taken out, I presume, to make room, you know, to some extent at least, to make room for this. And I would, I would just personally prefer to see that. It's not that I don't like this stuff particularly. I, I do. I think it's a very funny scene. But if we have to choose, as I said before, with, this, with the cuts in the song, if we have to choose one or the other, I personally would choose the other. His email address is Matthew Coney. <laughs> Please don't send letters to me. <laughs> but of course it's funny and it's great, yeah. So at the end, uh, Chico wanders in and uh, gets captured. And even with all the struggle and everything, there's nothing on the soundtrack. But uh, yes. we'll, let that, we'll let that one pass for now. So now we're, we're in the courtroom. Uh, Chico's on trial. And for all those who lament the loss of the court scene at the beginning of At the Circus, let this be a lesson of how Groucho in the courtroom mm. should, should go. Yes, or the courtroom scene, and I'll say she is, that nobody ever got to see. Uh, of the three courtroom scenes that the Marx Brothers did in their career, here's the one that made it to film. <laughs> and this is the other big flywheel scene. Yeah, and this is a lot, you know, this one's full of puns and a lot of groaners, but unlike uh, the groaners we get in the later MGM films, these are intended to be groaners. Mm-hmm. Chickalini, give me a number from one to ten. Eleven. Right. Now I ask you one. What is it has a trunk but no key? Weighs 2,000 pounds and lives in a circus. That's irrelevant. Irrelevant? Hey, that's the answer. There's a whole lot of relevance in a circus. That sort of testimony we can eliminate. That's a fine. I'll take some. You'll take what? 
lemonade. A nice cold glass of lemonade. Hey, boss, I'm going to good. <laughs> yeah. Gentlemen, Ciccolini here may talk like an idiot and look like an idiot, but don't let that fool you. He really is an idiot. By the way, as we've mentioned many times before, there are several contemporary stories claim that uh, Leo McCary did do a cameo in the film. And the one um, other piece of information that we have is that he was dressed as a peasant. So starting at this point in the film, we do see a lot of peasants in the scene. So uh, many of us have spent countless hours, way too many hours, uh, <laughs> analyzing frame by frame. And Many of us or you, have, Bob? <laughs> Okay, when I, well, I've done, I've done enough work. I've done enough work for many of us. I've yet, I've yet to find them. I've yet to find them, but I, I continue on the quest. Uh, obviously, with all the cuts and reshoots and everything, um, it's quite possible that it never made it into the finished film, but I'm still going, I'm still, I'm still going at it. And as you guys know, even last night, I found another possibility that hasn't been ruled out just yet. So you never know. So, but if any of you want to join me, uh, download the film, and I don't know how many thousands of frames there are, but uh, we could, we could, I could use the help. Look for a drunk peasant. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Trentino declares war once again. I didn't realize the ambassadors had that specific power, <laughs> but uh, that's a this is a foreign government, so who knows? Uh, this is one of my favorite Groucho explosions. Um, the, the way he works himself yes. up into this state of indignation. And then as soon as he sees Trentino's face, so you refuse to shake hands with me. It's just really, uh, it, it's beautifully yes. done. It's Groucho at his sort of uh, operatic best. Now comes the ambitious, this country is going to war sequence, uh, medley, uh, whatever you want to call it. Here come the Ritz brothers. <laughs> There's all sorts of strains here that sort of defies ex ex explanation. I don't know what's going on with There's, a lot of people freezing in the background at various moments. Yeah. A lot of random stuff going on. I'm not sure what it all means, but uh, I, I really enjoyed it. And uh, apparently so did Woody Allen. I wandered for a long time on the Upper West Side, you know, and it must have been hours. You know, my, my feet hurt. My head was, was pounding. And, and I had to sit down. I went into a movie house. I, I didn't know what was playing or anything. I just, I just needed a moment to gather my thoughts and, and be logical and, and put the world back into rational perspective. And I went upstairs to the balcony. And I sat down, and, you know, the movie was a, a film that I'd seen many times in my life since I was a kid, and, and I always loved it. And, you know, I'm, I'm watching these people up on the screen, and I started getting hooked on the film, you know? Um, Woody Allen was specifically asked about that in, when he gave uh, an interview over here at the National Film Theatre, uh, and he said he was actually a little bit embarrassed by that by that scene because uh, he, it was dishonest. Um, he he doesn't think that uh, that comedy has that that power to lift you out of yourself. Uh, it's that's not his opinion at all, and he regrets doing that. He regrets a lot about Hannah and her sisters, apparently. <laughs> yeah. But I thought that was very interesting. Nevertheless, that is one of several uh, moments in, in Woody Allen's films where he presents the Marx Brothers, or Groucho specifically, as kind of representing his life force. Um, Groucho is the first item on the list of things that make worth living in Manhattan. 
um, in Stardust Memories when he's in his earlier, happier days. There's a mural of Groucho. And the manicurist. On his and, the manicurist. <laughs> and the manicurist. <laughs> yeah, which, which later becomes a mural of the My Lai Massacre during darker times. So uh, the Marx Brothers represent uh, life-affirming energy in the Woody Allen cosmos. I do think that the We're Going to War number is um, the closest Duck Soup gets maybe to deliberate satire, be, partly because it is so clearly a parody of a certain kinds of musical number, um, and also because this sort of flippant take on American nationalism seems kind of exceptional for its time. And I wonder if it's uh, maybe wouldn't have flown uh just slightly later in the code era um i mean it, of course it's tame by today's standards but they really are making a mockery of the whole idea of patriotic pageantry any more thoughts on the, on this uh, extravaganza i'm i'm staying tight-lipped i don't want to uh, okay. <laughs> I, I just don't, i don't like it at all i yesterday i liked it less than ever i just don't i don't know what they're doing messing about like that pulling those faces Okay, let's move on to the finale now. Uh, I don't care what you guys say. This is my all-time favorite Marx Brothers finale. Uh, a Night at the Opera is the only other one that comes close. But yeah, this is not obligatory. This is not just oh, let's let's end the story. We have to figure out a way to end the film. This is this is the, the film going into another gear, and it's it's wonderful. There's good <laughs> there's good gags, yeah. There's bad gags. Uh, I I just love every moment of it. It has great energy. I even like Zeppo in his. Well, never mind. I love it. So talk me down. I would just say that it's a bit, it reminds me a little bit of the the party scene in uh, Monkey Business in that it's it's full of good jokes and, and there are some, there are some absolutely great ones there. Um, but there's no, there's no structure. There's no momentum. So it's, it, it's just, it's very, very staccato um, and it just, it just trundles along and then it ends. Um, whereas something like opera, you know, there, there's a, there's a, there's a, a shape to it. Um, it just seems very bitty to me. Um, a lot of it, you know, I, I don't like, I don't like helpers on the way or Harper going out with the sandwich board or, or, or those sort of things, you know. Um, and it's, yeah, it just feels very bitty to me, but you know, that's not necessarily a problem. And, and a lot of it is, is funny. I gotta be honest. I do have a very big soft spot for this uh, scene is it was the first, uh, Marx Brothers film I owned, the uh, Castle Films cut down, This Is War, Silent Super 8, and it was this war scene, and I always loved it and played it back countless times, so maybe that explains my affection for this all. Did it have dialogue subtitles, or did it just have the visual bits? Oh, yes, it did. Yeah, yes, yeah, it did. Yeah. yes, it did. But not a lot, but certainly enough mm. uh, to get the to get the humor across. Um, let's start with the reveal of the brothers in Revolutionary Garb in Harpo's Paul Revere ride. I know this isn't one of your favorite bits, but I absolutely love it. Uh, I mean, despite his libido kicking in, Harpo doesn't forget his horse and goes back out and feeds him. Right. And uh, it's, what yeah. I, I mean, is that it though? Is that is that you know this one genuine? You know, I get I get why people might like the the song, but this one just just baffles me. Apart apart from that, or is that enough? What what's good about this? It's just it goes on forever, doesn't it? And he's just nothing happens. Huh? I, I I I don't know what to say other than that I find it funny. I love I love that uh, he uh, you know this isn't the Harpo from uh, Animal Crackers where he's spraying himself unconscious with. Uh, I mean this is uh, he's in full force here. He he comes back in. He he actually hops into the bed. 
Hmm. He hops in the bed for this girl, and and when she hears that her husband's coming, she doesn't act like somebody who's being attacked. She acts like somebody who's cheating. Yeah, her husband or is about, or is about to. Like, oh my god, <laughs> my husband's coming! Okay. Get in the bathroom! Get in the get in the bathroom! Hmm. And uh, and then obviously that 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 incredible mental image of being Harpo with with a naked Edgar Kennedy squatting yeah. over you. And slowly lowering <laughs> yes. himself. I can pro- On paper, this must have sounded like the most convoluted gag ever with Harpo <laughs> appearing out of the bathtub, you know, underneath him. But McCarrier really pulls it off. I mean, it's again, it's a good, it's a good trick shot, isn't it? Presumably, they must, they must be yeah. under, you know, uh, uh, under the bottom of the frame. Uh, he must be stood up, wasn't he? Imagine Sam Wood giving this material and trying to trying to make heads <laughs> or tails out of it, you know? The actual midnight ride. Peace and and his encounter with this woman and and her husband who turns out to be Edgar Kennedy um, is I don't know I, I it's kind of so so for me but the piece right before it where they appear the Marx Brothers appear in front of a curtain with Harpo on horseback I I really love that uh, partly because it presents them as stage figures I love them in those costumes just as I love Groucho in the procession of military uniforms later. Um, and Groucho's line, the enemy is coming from afar with a hey nani nani and a hot cha cha, um, is one of my favorite Groucho lines. It, it's certainly not the wittiest material he was ever given, but it, it's very representative of him. I picture that's something you've always wanted to do live. Yeah, yeah, exactly so. Something about the, the weightiness, the portentousness of the enemy is coming from afar and then immediately following it up with a sort of low class cultural reference like hey nani nani and a hot cha cha and the way he delivers it with such almost disturbing enthusiasm. Uh, yeah, for me, that's a, a, a beautiful moment. So after the bathtub bit, uh, we surprisingly we get a little Harpo backstory is he uh, appears to come home and and meet up with, I guess that's his wife. I'm not sure she would be thrilled with where he just came from, but it's a sweet moment to have Harp, to see Harpo with a real home and a real life to come back to after he's done, uh, you know, swimming in the lemonade. Is that what you think's happening there then? I, I know that's what Alan Ailis says, but I always thought that was just him being charming and, and English and sweet. I thought he, I thought he just chanced upon another, another attractive girl and, uh, got a bit, a little bit luckier this time. I interpret it as him coming home. I don't know, but I, I, I just find it all sweet. Uh, and of course, uh, the sweetness is undercut by the fact that Harpo would like to uh, sleep with the horse more than than the lady. And I think that's a wonderful Harpo moment. I just think somewhere in the ni- sometime in like the nineteen sixties or something, uh, some terrible mistake was made, and that scene was removed from the MGM film it came from, uh, and swapped with uh, the searching the strong man's room, which was taken out of the Paramount film that that came from, and somehow those two scenes migrated. It just seems like pure MGM drivel to me. That whole lengthy bit, but that's fine. <laughs> yeah, and Harpo sleeping with the horse. That does remind me of a, a Jerry Springer episode that I once worked on. <laughs> 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 I'll get into that uh, at some future point. <laughs> Finally, we're into our uh, war climax. By the way, we're still not 100% sure exactly which side Ciccolini and Pinky are on. It's never really made clear as they <laughs> seem to be vacillating depending on the scene. <laughs> I love Chico's uh, eeny meeny counting. I did it wrong. It's another little bit that gives a lot of fodder to those who who want to see this as a 
um, an intentional political satire, uh, the way Harpo is so, you know, unfairly chosen as the one to go to war and then is immediately told, you're a brave man. Um, you know, that, that is one of the times the movie lurches a little bit closer to something that feels. Yes, I'm like thinking satire. what a sucker you are, that bit particularly. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> Also a nice bit where um, he, Harper leaves a dusty handprint on Margaret Chupin's backside. It's very, very easy to miss. <laughs> he's, uh, he's trying to push her out the door, isn't he? And, and she kind of looks behind her as if to say, you know, get your hands off my ass. And, uh, and he, leaves a, he leaves a dusty handprint there, which he then points to and laughs, which is very nice. <laughs> and like all the other scenes in the film, there are quite a bit of uh, moments that have been cut out. When Groucho has the vase stuck on his head and Harper puts a... Uh, firecracker under it you see that there's now a, a rope around the vase and yes chico is holding on the other end apparently the remnant of some cut gag of them trying to pull it off yeah i'm sure there's probably loads of stuff cut from that because you can't you can't tell because of the nature of how it's assembled anyway they probably just took took their pick from from three times as much stuff i suppose when the dynamite explodes and the and the urn is shattered um it's a one of very few shots we've ever seen of Groucho in a film uh, without his glasses, because I guess he can't have his glasses on under that <laughs> under that vase. Um, that only happens once in a while. Full makeup, no glasses. So let me ask you guys something. Who is it that shoots Groucho in the butt? Uh. Huh. For years, I looked at this film and I assumed it was, it was Maggie, because she's right behind him fiddling around with a rifle, and it looks like I always thought it just accidentally went off and shot him in the butt. But uh, watching again yesterday, I see a Sylvanian soldier actually pops out of nowhere, aims his rifle and shoots him. I mean, like from 10 feet away, hits him in the butt. <laughs> Not exactly the, the best shot in the world. <laughs> but uh, I misinterpreted it all these years. It's good to be, good to be oh, said straight. Oh, I missed that completely. I missed it completely as well. Yeah. yeah, interesting. Finally, the Sylvanian troops appear to have broken through, but the boys clobber them one by one as they enter. And uh, when Trentino appears, they... Wedge his head in the with the pieces of wood and start pelting him with fruit. Yeah. <laughs> Groucho says like three or four, two or three times. Anyhow, he says Trantino, eh? <laughs> 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 yeah, I don't know what that is. He keeps I think saying. Uh, McCary had some of those wild lines on the cutting room floor and just randomly yeah. put them in. Mr. <laughs> Teasdale yells, "Victory is ours!" Uh, apparently, uh, a war is over when you belt the opposing. <laughs> Ambassador with fruit. I get that signals the end of the war. <laughs> well, he surrenders, doesn't he? Trenty goes, I surrender. Oh, okay. Don't throw any more peaches at me. You know? <laughs> at least make them more ripe so they're not so hard. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point, actually, isn't it? They've, uh, Liam McCary, of all people, has avoided anything going splat there. None of those, none of that fruit uh, is squidgy. Mm-hmm. On that same line of thought, um, when Mrs. Teasdale starts singing Hail Fredonia, uh, the boys turn and start heaving fruit at her. But notice that uh, even though they're 10 or 15 feet away from her, none of the fruit actually hits Mrs. Teasdale. You know, they, they, they were very, yeah. they're very accurate. They were able to throw it and just miss her. And it is real, seems to be real fruit hitting the wall there. And it is a final gag worthy of the film. Um, it's not another uh, needle in the haystack. Oh, uh, yes, moment. absolutely, yeah. The, the way they turn on her, that is genuinely funny. And it, it is a good cap for all that's going on. Yes, I think so, yeah. And we fade out. And Matthew just sits there. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas the rest of us get up and dance about how much we love it. 
As, as everybody in the in the auditorium raises to their feet and claps, I sit on my hands and bite my lip and look cross. <laughs> but actually, back in the day, uh, reviews were like more mixed than ever. Many, many did rave about it, but there were still quite a bit of dissenting opinions. And even many who liked it said that it really wasn't uh, among their best. Uh, 1933 was just not the, the best year to, to put out a film of this nature, and it certainly had something to do with it. Yes, partly that. And also, of course, as, as we've said many times, um, these were films you saw once, and uh, what you carried with you is your memory of it. So whatever, whatever you think of Coconuts looking at it now, if it's the first Marx Brothers film you ever saw, my God, can you imagine? And similarly, if Animal mm. Crackers was the second and Monkey Business was the third, um, people were just, just getting more used to them, I think. To be fair, the uh, opinion on the film uh, evolved pretty quickly, and by the 40s and 50s, it was as well-respected and highly regarded as pretty much anything from their heyday. And by the mid-60s, it was uh, slowly uh, uh, supplanting A Night at the Opera as their masterpiece. And, you know, uh, those two still fight it out. But uh, we should address the fact also that it was never a a bomb uh, financially, like legend has it. Uh, Matthew? Yes, well, the, the general idea that they, they lost their Paramount contract, that they were let go of because the film was unsuccessful, um, is, is the myth, isn't it? I mean, it didn't, it didn't do as well as hoped. Partly, I think, because it costs such a lot. It, it's, um, it's a very uh, expensive looking film, isn't it? I mean, I'm sure they, I'm sure that a lot of those sets are bits and pieces that are reused from, from other things, but nonetheless, it has yeah. incredibly, grandiose sets and uh lots and lots of extras all those sets of glasses yeah all those groucho glasses, <laughs> all those glasses yeah, yeah all those nightcaps <laughs> all those uh night dresses which we know were pink not white according to uh to the newspaper reports mm-hmm. um but yeah loads of extras teaming about loads of costume which the other ones didn't particularly have you know uh, military and and regal costume um it's just a very grand production and uh, in 1933, when when most films didn't do as well as they were intended to, it didn't do as well as it was intended to. But uh, certainly no flop, no. And despite the myth, uh, Paramount was interested in bringing them back. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Um, they did nego- They did. They did negotiate. Who was the new head of the studio? What's it, Emmanuel Cohn? Who, from what I read, I guess one of the big hang-ups is that he wanted. Four Marx Brothers, not, not just three. I don't know. I don't know if that's the reason they didn't sign back there, but uh, not necessarily the same four. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, so we should. Yes, when this film faded to black, so did the uh, film career of one Zeppo Marx. Uh, and, and you have you have to wonder exactly when he made the decision. Was it uh, when Frenchie died? Frenchie died uh, the previous spring, uh, while the film was still in development and in, and in flux. He knew that uh, his family obligation was done, and maybe he knew that when the, the Paramount uh, contract was over, that he was going to flee. Or did it happen when the film was being made, and he saw how small his part was again, and how yeah. much it was cut? Uh, I just wonder if there was any resistance at all from from the other three. I mean, obviously, we know he's no he, he doesn't contribute anything, but but we do definitely get a sense that. That the the concept of the four Marx Brothers was was it, it was genuinely um, they were very reluctant to let go of that and I I wonder if anybody any of the other three did try and talk him out of it or thought that it would jinx it in some way uh, to lose mm-hmm. that that fourth person it's again it's it's a shame that he was so unforthcoming 
um, later in life, because unlike Chico, he was around to be interviewed and he was interviewed a little bit, but uh, mm -hmm. famously uh, reluctant to talk about a subject which he clearly found utterly tedious. I, t I tend to think that the moment uh, he decided to leave the act was uh, when he started reading the newspaper. And so it's always been written about him. Yes, <laughs> yes when, he, when he realized he was a byword for awfulness to, to a degree that no <laughs> other performer in American entertainment history <laughs> ever was. <laughs> but the fact that it's his last film with them uh, makes me love the final image even more. I mean, isn't it good that it's not an ending like Horse Feathers where Zeppo's represented by a stand-in? <laughs> Um, you know, our last image of Zeppo is as a full member of the team with his brothers throwing fruit at Margaret Dumont. Um, you know, he, he, he at least gets a proper send off in a movie that, that doesn't really give him. And with his time. rippling physique, which again, that must have been his. I doubt anybody at the studio said, why yeah. don't you just do it in a torn vest? That'll be good. That'll be funny. <laughs> that, that's his idea, isn't it? He, he wants to be seen like that. So, uh, good, good luck yeah. to him. Obviously, st steroids. I'm thinking steroids. <laughs> <laughs> the, the one thing he has that yeah, his brothers yeah. don't. <laughs> so, any final thoughts on the film, gentlemen? On this viewing, I was struck um, by how different it is from uh, Monkey Business and Horse Feathers, with which it comprises a kind of trilogy. Um, but more and more, every time I see it, Duck Soup feels like a kind of a way station between the Paramount and MGM periods. And not only because it's so much more lavish as a production than, than Monkey Business and Horse Feathers. I think I was just on this last viewing. It occurred to me. I think this is the first Marx Brothers movie that feels like a depression era entertainment. Um, Monkey Business and Horse Feathers really still feel like the roaring twenties mm -hmm. to me in, in terms of their tone and, and the subject matter too. Uh, but this, it feels like the thirties in Duck Soup. It feels like the depression. There's a, I don't mean this to, to say that the film is unpleasant to watch. It's not, but there's a bitterness to it. There's a dyspeptic quality that I associate with the thirties that lingers through the MGM films, but um, I think it shows up here for the first time. It, we are we are uh, inarguably in the Great Depression. Well, are you referring to Matthew's experience watching it when you say? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, even that lavishness. I mean, as we know, the 30s, you know, became a, a great appetite for mm -hmm. uh, uh, escapism into lavish uh, cinema. And so even the production of it being so much more... Um, you know, f fancy and, and ornate, um, says, says that to me. We're further from the twenties and further from Broadway than, than we've been so far. One thing I wanted to bring up, I wanted to do this earlier is that when you look at the writings about horse feathers and monkey business that are quite positive, uh, the reviews of the day, the one slight, um, criticism we get of the films is that the Marxes are starting to repeat themselves and starting to become redundant and maybe not quite as fresh. So maybe this was a conscious attempt to go in another direction and do something that they hadn't done before. Maybe, yeah. yeah. Maybe. Uh, and an admirable uh, impulse, if that was. I mean, certainly a lot of the things that are, that are missing from those early scripts are things that, that are, you know, very indebted to earlier films um like the take a letter stuff you know is very much animal crackers reprised what it's been replaced by is indeed stuff that's that's very different from from what they did before um 
uh, I don't know though really that you particularly want something different from from people who who you you know love doing a certain thing. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, if this was a TV series, you know, if there were if there were 128 of these things, then then fine. But if you if you're only getting one a year, I'd I'd rather see them do what they can do best personally i i was struck this time i didn't really change my opinion of it i, I still think it's extremely good i still think it's mm. in the top half i still think it's the least of the paramounts but the thing that that struck me more forcefully this time was how how bitty it is how it does seem to be cut down from something much longer mm. um not in the usual way of just t- in in the way that mgm would do by by taking out a whole scene or a whole song but by by snipping 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 uh, you know so so it it never really finds the kind of rhythm that the first four have yeah. um it's almost like a highlights reel and i never really felt like i was you know, I was into it. It was still kind of getting going, and then it ends. Um, I certainly didn't change my opinion of it. I think it's, I think it's um, very comfortably the least of the Paramounts. I think there's something about masterpiece thinking um, that makes people miss a lot of great art. You know, people want to say that there's one Marx Brothers movie that is definitive. It's really the essential one that you need to see. And Duck Soup, that'll tell you everything you really need to know about the Marx Brothers. Yes. And City Lights for Chaplin and Sons of the Desert for Laurel and Hardy. And of course, none of it is true. There is no one work that tells you everything you need to know about any of these great artists. And um, so to the extent that I feel an urge to push back against the popularity of duck soup it's about that it's like hey this is not all there was to them it's not um their most typical film uh nor necessarily their funniest i think ironically its biggest influence on the marx's career afterwards is how it became the template for what thalberg did not want to do with the team yes you know an example of what he wanted to change Yes, I mean that was the example he used, wasn't it? That it was just joke, 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 and and you don't care. Which I suppose is is almost what I'm saying. Except I'm not saying that you don't care about them. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying it never it never really turns into a film. Um, so that that was partly mm-hmm. his point, wasn't it? And the fact that that you need somebody to care for is almost a a secondary point. Uh, he was also arguing very much mm-hmm. in favour of structure. Um, but the kind of structure I like isn't his kind of structure. It's more it's more the animal crackers kind of structure. It's the theatrical three act structure, where uh, you know you have one mm. chunk and then another chunk and then another chunk. Um, this is much more much more cinematic, much more skittish, and as you pointed out, much more like a, a seventy minute two reeler. Well, thank you guys, Matthew. I hope you don't mind uh, teasing you about that. <laughs> your your reaction to this film. I'm just I'm just having fun with you. You're an easy target when it, on this one. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's de- definitely in, ca- in case you know to, to people who come are coming completely new to us. It is definitely one of my my favorite Marx Brothers films. It's just it's my least favorite of of the Paramounts. One of your thirteen favorite. <laughs> it's it's number six after Opera and the other Paramounts. <laughs> okay, that about does it for this episode of the Marx Brothers Council podcast. Um, if you want to give us some great feedback on iTunes, we would appreciate it if you would like to join our conversation on the Marx Brothers Council. Facebook group, please go there and join in. We'd love to hear your thoughts on what we talked about here and any other Marx-related subject. And of course, our my co-hosts, their their books are easily available on Amazon. Uh, Matthew's uh, painfully available. An- <laughs> the Annotated Marx Brothers, <laughs> and that's me, Groucho, 
and Noah's um no I always forget the name of your book. <laughs> <laughs> it's called Gimme a Thrill, the story of I'll say she is. So please fund our lives by buying these books and uh we'll be catching you down the line. And uh before we leave, we would like you to stay tuned and enjoy this as we say goodbye. I went hunting one fine day and my bullets were made of lead. It was bing, bang, bing and a boom, boom, boom and the big bad wolf was dead. Oh, I took my gun and I went like this and I shot him right through the head. It was bing, bang, bing and a boom, boom, boom and the big bad wolf was dead. Tra la 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 la, we won't worry anymore. Tra la 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 la, no more wolf at anyone's door. Now we can go out and play and earn our daily bread. Cause I bing bang bing, then I boom boom boom, then the big bad wolf was dead. Matthew, I was just preparing you for the feedback you're going to get on this. I'm just getting you ready. So how's that? How's that? <laughs> I'm ready. Bring it on. <laughs>